2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be reading from verses 7 through 12 this morning. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to a great adventure as the church. It's embedded in our very name, in the very word, the church. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, the called out one. In the very word church is this sense of being called out to something greater than ourselves. When we think of the history of uh, those in the Bible, we think of uh, people like Noah who was called to build a boat in a desert and to go sailing on an ocean that did not exist before and land in a place that he did not know beforehand. We think of Abraham who was called to leave those who um, he loved, to leave his homeland and journey out into a place that was not revealed to him at the first. And we think of Moses who was called from the comforts of Egyptian society from Egyptian royalty to go out and to save God's people, Israel. We think of David who was called from um, the sleepy hillsides of uh, Bethlehem and um, the surrounding areas to go and become the king of Israel. We think of the disciples who, when they were about their ordinary work, fishing, tax collecting, uh, doctoring, doing the things that they ordinarily do with the simple words, follow me, dropped what they had, dropped what was going on, and followed Jesus Christ, not knowing where they were going. And we think, of course, of Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of this, one who left the glories and comforts of heaven to come down to be subject to the miseries of this life, to be born of a woman, to live in our shoes, to walk in our shoes, to be crucified, to die, and then to set out again on a journey back to heaven where He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. God has been with us on all of these adventures, on all of these journeys. He has promised to be with us on our own as it manifests itself in our daily lives. And He's also promised that it won't be an easy journey. There are a couple of ways that we can proceed. There are a couple of ways in which we can think about ourselves as we set out on this journey. One is we can adopt a business model of being the church. We can adopt a business model of journeying out as the church. And here's what that would look like, sort of. On the playing field of competing ideologies, we would also have to compete. We would have to compete for people's time and money and resources in order for the organization to flourish. We would utilize the best strategies to most effectively communicate our mission and thus market our product to our target demographic. We would target a demographic that would contribute the most to the organization's financial resources, 
so that we can be free to market in ways that are the most conducive to the overall growth of the organization. And most importantly, we would have to survive. And that means never stepping outside the bounds of social, political, or economic norms that have been established for us in the, in the modern nation state. But I'm afraid that the church that does, does this will fail to understand itself in the context of the body of Christ. It will fail to understand itself in the context of the kingdom of God. It's a church that chases after the respect of culture, the resources of the wealthy, and the power which it perceives to be held by the governing authorities. The result will be an anemic church. A church that ceases to attempt great things for God. A church that ceases to step out in faith, knowing that God will see His promises through and that the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. Now this is a sermon not just for you, but for me as well. Because until those of us who serve the church begin to step out in faith and to do things that are God-believing, we will never see anything significant or meaningful happen. So I speak as much to myself in this as I do to all of you. Our other option is to adopt the biblical model of being the church on this journey. And this is where we come to this passage. Paul talks about having this treasure in jars of clay. Now, of course, we have to understand before we uh, set out on this journey, we have to understand what this treasure is. We have to understand what our purpose is. Our purpose is to unbury treasure. Not to dig it up, but to unbury it. To disclose it to the world. And this treasure, of course, is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord. It's in this proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord that we really understand everything we need to know about who God is, who Jesus is, and what we're supposed to do about it. He is, first of all, Jesus. He is the second Adam. He is sent from God to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. He is, to us, a prophet. He is Christ. He is the one who not only accomplished what Adam failed to do, but then by virtue of his being God and man, he applied the benefits of this work to us that we might both have our sins forgiven and be right before God. And not only that, he then ascended into heaven, as I said before, and, and seated himself at the right hand of God the Father. That's so important, that phrase, he seated himself at the right hand of God the Father. In the Old Testament, the priest, Hebrews tells us, stood daily and offered sacrifices for our sins. Jesus, our ultimate priest, now does not stand offering sacrifices for us. He offered that sacrifice. And now He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That sacrifice being done. And there He pleads our case before God. And He doesn't merely plead our case in the sense of just saying, well, that person is a believer, so... Your wrath can't touch, can't touch him. He pleads our case in the sense that he also looks at us and says, I understand what that person's going through right now. I've been tempted that way before. So he not only gives us forgiveness and grants us um, a right status before God, but he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts to comfort us, to cleanse our consciences. He is a priest to us. Jesus Christ is Lord. Finally, 
His Lordship, His work on the cross, His work in life inaugurated the coming of the Kingdom of God. Those who are His are citizens of a heavenly kingdom that is breaking in upon this earthly realm. He is our King. He is our prophet. And He is our priest. This reality of Jesus Christ as Lord, just thinking in this way, changes the way we look at life. His life, death, and resurrection cause us to look at life through entirely different spectacles than the rest of the world. To a world that seeks power and prestige and wealth by entirely rational and logical and scientifically verifiable means, our lives, this life, makes no sense. But why do they make no sense? Because this treasure that we have, this treasure of Jesus Christ as Lord, is held in jars of clay. And we are those jars of clay. Cheap, unattractive, fragile, cracked, chipped jars of clay. Jesus, of course, was the ultimate example of this because He came as someone who was just a regular guy. If you looked at Him, you wouldn't think He was the Messiah. If Jesus hadn't come yet and you were just sort of a random body of people and I told you that, that the Son of God had just been born in a horse barn out here behind this building, you wouldn't believe me. We, we give the people back then a hard time because they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe. They couldn't see He was who He was, but would we really thought any different? Just to see this guy, this regular guy born in poverty, But no, God chose to come in just such a form. Chose to come as a man to us. But why? Why would God choose to reveal Himself through such frail creatures? A frail creature is Jesus Christ, and then as frail creatures and those who are sent to proclaim Jesus Christ. Because the weaker the creature, the greater God's glory shines through it. Look at the examples from history that demonstrate this. Think about, I was reading uh, the story of David and Goliath this morning. Here's this kid. He's got no armor on. He hears about this guy Goliath, the champion of the Philistine army. He's like seven or eight feet tall. He's undefeated and undefeatable. Everybody else is terrified of him. And David finds out about this guy and says, well, you know, he's defying the armies of our God. He has no right to do that. Puts five rocks in his pocket and it says he ran to the front line, put a rock in his sling, slung it around his head and popped the guy in the forehead with the first rock and the guy died. Fell over dead. That's insane. It really is. It's ridiculous to think I mean, nobody with a half a brain would have told him to do that. Would have said that's a good idea. People did try to discourage him from it. But David knew that he didn't go just on his own power. I don't, he probably didn't think for a second that a rock was going to kill the guy, but he knew God would kill the guy. He knew that God would be the champion of his people. Can you imagine David's insurers? if they knew about such a circumstance. David wasn't worried about his insurance policy covering 
going to battle unarmed against an eight-foot-tall giant. He just went. He just did it. Just a kid. Think of other stories. I mentioned Noah earlier building a boat in the desert for an ocean that didn't exist yet. Just a guy out there with a hammer. But God said, build it. And so he did. You think of Gideon who defeated a huge army with a few hundred people. Not because he thought he could do it, but because God said, this is what's going to happen. You can do it. Just read Hebrews 11. It's full of examples of these things. Or read the whole Old Testament even better. It's full of these kinds of examples. Ask yourself this question. Is it, is it difficult for God to demonstrate His glory among us? Understand what I mean by that. Not that God is somehow incapable of doing something. But are we being so self-sufficient that we don't need God? Are we so self-protective that we're afraid to step out of our comfort zones and do anything for fear that we won't be provided for? Are we somehow fearing that God will not fulfill His promises to us? If God's glory is indeed best shown through our weaknesses, it first requires that we understand how weak and fragile we are as human beings. It requires that we step out in faith. And coming to this understanding is going to be an uncomfortable proposition. It might require that we get dirty. It might require that we step into somebody else's messy life. It might require that we put our own lives in danger, our own finances in danger. But you know what? You're going to die anyway. Someday you're going to die. Why not die in the service of your Creator? Why not die stepping out in faith, believing that His promises are true? It might even require horror of horrors that we would have to leave the suburbs once in a while to minister to those who are hurting, to those who, are, who, who wear their weaknesses on their sleeves. It's precisely at that point when we begin to step out in faith, when we begin to do great things for God, that we will see that we have no wisdom, that we have no resources, that we have no good strategy, that we have no money, that nothing earthly will solve our problems. Nothing earthly will get us out of this situation. And it's precisely at those cracks in the jar of your life that God will shine through, that God will mend those cracks, that God will hold that jar together. It's precisely there that God is able to demonstrate His power. That He's able to give Paul the right to say verses 8 and 9 here, we are afflicted in every way, but that jar is not crushed. It's perplexed, but it's not driven to despair. It's not cast off. It's persecuted, but it's not forsaken. It's been thrown down to the ground, but it's not destroyed. And why is this? It's because this jar of clay is God's jar. Our lives don't need to make sense to the world. We don't need to chase after cultural respectability. We don't need to advance an agenda that any reasonable person would adopt, whether they be Christians or not. The Christian agenda will never make sense to the world. And so Paul says that we're constantly given over to death that the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. 
Because it makes no sense to say that we're powerless to save ourselves. It makes no sense to say that our kingdom, our citizenship is not of this world. It makes no sense to say that our hope doesn't lie in political affiliations or capital campaigns or academic prowess. It makes no sense to say that meaning is given to our community of the church by hearing a few words and eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little wine. It makes no sense to say that all power and meaning lies in the life, death, and resurrection of a man that lived 2,000 years ago. And because we don't make sense to the world, we can expect to be treated like Jesus was treated The world thought of him as a madman, raving about his invisible father and his plans for world domination and rising from the dead. And if that's true, then we are similar lunatics with a crazy-to-the-world gospel to proclaim. But I'm afraid that until we get a little crazy and proclaim it, we will fail to see God's hand work in a mighty way we have in some ways become rich and forgotten our Creator. We have clung to our last penny, afraid that He will provide. And guess what? He might not provide the money. He might not provide the comfort. He might not provide the respect. He might not provide these things that we think we need now. But the message is that our hope is not something that this world can offer us. We hope for something bigger. We hope for something better than what this world has to offer. This world is not our final home. The hope of this world is not our hope. This is not a miserable existence, though. This is not a depressing journey where we can just expect to be just in horrible agony our entire lives. It's it's an existence of joy. It's a journey of joy. Because we hope for that something there, because we believe that the promises of God are true, because we look for something beyond the daily grind of this life. We hope for a God who who comes and makes all things new. We hope for a God who reconciles all things, who wipes away every tear from our eyes. We hope for a God that sends death and sin and hell whimpering away. Hear now these words in conclusion. They're based on Psalm 34. A man named Paul Gerhardt wrote them in 1656. John Wesley translated them in 1737. And then a musical group appropriately named Jars of Clay adapted them and updated them in 2005. Give to the wind your fear. Hope and be undismayed. God hears your sighs and counts your tears. God will lift up your head. Leave to His sovereign sway to choose and to command. Then shall we wandering on His way know how wise and how strong. God will lift up your head. Through waves and clouds and storms, He gently clears the way. Wait, because in His time, so shall this night soon and enjoy. God will lift up your head. To the praise and glory of God. Amen.